Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2136 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week four of a 43-week series on the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Library. It's actually the day after Sunday. But uh, our AV guy was out yesterday, and when I started the recording, I didn't realize that the sound prompt was off, and so we had a recording with no sound to it. So it wasn't a very good way to present the gospel or present God's word without the sound. So welcome to Putnam Congregational Church, where our vision is to act justly to our community, to mercifully love the broken, and to walk humbly with our God. I do welcome each one of you that will be watching today. Today we continue our series on the good news according to John, John the Apostle. And this message covers the first five of Jesus' 12 disciples. So before we examine these five guys, let's read John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The following day, John was again standing with his two, two disciples, and that was John the Baptist, as Jesus walked by, John looked up at him and declared, Look, the Lamb of God! When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? he asked. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come and see, he said. And it was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went to the place where he was staying and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John had said, and then he followed Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't say in the scripture, but the other one was John the Apostle, so it was Andrew and John the Apostle. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but I will call you Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come see for yourself, Philip replied. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know that about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, Do you believe this just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Interesting passage that we have here. Now most of us can remember 
what was referenced as the Cold War, which was never more frigid than during the 1970s. It seems that nothing would stop that creeping spread of communism. One by one, capitalist nations in Europe, Asia, fell either to Russia or that spell of socialism. Now, few in the United States feared the military assault as it was from, with, from outside the country, but we, there was a genuine threat of communism or socialism coming from within. Fortunately, the Soviet Union gradually fell and some of those falsehoods were, were exposed. We have seen through the recent Though we have seen, though, through recent years, that there is still a strong influence in democratic nations, including our own country. These ideologies have infiltrated much of academia, media, and the politics. And some of those institutions still promote them today, but in more subtle ways. As Christ followers, we must also realize that there's much corruption among those who are rich and powerful and those who actively fight against communism or socialism. But neither of those ideologies, communism or socialism, will bring about world peace or a utopia which is hoped for. Only when the good news of Jesus Christ changes hearts will we see a true and lasting change in this world. It does not require rich and powerful people or ruthless dictators for this change to happen. As citizens of God's kingdom, we should have great expectations that the world can change if we diligently build his kingdom here on earth. As we see from today's passage, Jesus set out to change this world, begin with a handful of just some unremarkable men. And from the beginning, Jesus Christ had great expectations. Last week and this week, we focused on John chapter 1, verses 19 through 51, one might think that the apostle had torn pages out of his journal, his personal journal, and wrote this account about John the baptizer and then Jesus. In verse 19, he wrote one day, this was John's testimony. In verse 129, the next day, he saw Jesus coming. Verse 35, the following day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, one of which was John the Apostle. In verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Now it presents four consecutive days in simple chronological orders based on personal observations of these events. Now on the first day, John the baptizer announced an imminent revelation of that Messiah. On the second day, the baptizer identified Jesus as the Messiah. On the third and fourth days, Jesus called his first five disciples, which the gospel writer describes in quick, rapid-fire succession. And with each encounter, there was a presentation of the truth, an initial response from the hearers, a decision to believe, and then a decision to follow Jesus Christ. That pattern was set for all of us who follow Jesus Christ as our Savior. Each response to that truth is that it was as individual as the man themselves. And the Lord engages each of these five men one-on-one -on -one in his engagement with them. In this first encounter, Andrew and the other disciple, not really mentioned, but by inference it was John the Apostle, followed their wilderness preacher, John the Baptizer. 
And when they saw their mentor, John the Baptizer, point to Jesus and then declare him to be that long-awaited Hebrew Messiah, the man who would save the world from their sin, immediately they moved toward Jesus to learn more. The phrase that they followed Jesus was both literal and figurative. Jesus was walking somewhere, and these two men trailed behind him. In the ancient world, you see, disciples literally walked after the teacher to observe his life, to listen to his teaching. And when Jesus noticed these two men, he asked, what do you want? Which was to really ask, what are your intentions with following me? Or in other words, are you here to ask me a question? Or are you indicating your desire to become one of my disciples? When they asked Jesus, where are you staying? That confirmed their intention to follow him from then on. And I love this response from Jesus. He says, come and you will see such simple words that would have a lifelong meaning. As we move on to verses 38 and 39 of this passage, John uses one of his favorite terms three times, and that's the Greek word meno, which means to stay or to live with, to remain still or to endure. And later Jesus commanded his disciples, probably in Aramaic, to abide with me, which John renders using that same Greek word meno. Now John and Andrew remained with Jesus for the rest of that day, and because they arrived so late, it was 4 p.m. in the afternoon, they very likely stayed with Jesus and had a meal with him, reclined at his table. And they talked into the night and lodged with him until that following day. It must have been a magnificent time for them to spend those hours with that God-man himself. As we move on with verses 40 through 42, after leaving Jesus' home that following morning, Andrew's first act was to find his brother Simon. And although Simon was the principal owner of a fishing enterprise in Galilee, more than 70 miles north of Jerusalem, he was undoubtedly nearby, maybe visiting the temple in Jerusalem. And Andrew announced that he had found the Messiah and brought his brother Simon to see Jesus. Now we'll see in future chapters that Andrew made a habit of introducing other people to Jesus such as in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, or chapter 12, verses 20 through 22. Now, when Jesus looked at Simon, he immediately looked intently, almost as if he was looking into his soul. And we can only guess what he saw and why he said what he did. Jesus changed that man's name, Simon, to a he- which was a Hebrew derivative for the word Shema, to hear, and his name would be changed to Kepha, in the Aramaic t- t- word for stone. And John transliterated it to Cephas for his Greek readers. However, Greeks would know that name by the Greek name for stone, which was Petros, or Peter. Now, John's narrative never thoroughly explains the significance of this encounter or the reason why Jesus changed Simon's name. But it is certain that Jesus saw people not as they were, but as they will ultimately become. And that the same for true for you and I. He doesn't see us as we were. He sees us as we will ultimately become. So as we move on to verses 43 and 44, after meeting Peter, we are told the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. 
Now, that was a journey of three difficult days walking through a hill country of Judea, 70 miles that they walked in three days. Now, John and Andrew and Simon were all residents of that same fishing village in Galilee, and that town was called Bethsaida. Now, Jerusalem is toward the bottom of Israel, the Holy Land, and if you go up above the Sea of Galilee, that's where Bethsaida was, and they were fishermen from that area. Now, the town was a town of Bethsaida, but John doesn't tell us where he found Philip, whether it was in Jerusalem before they left or when they arrived in Bethsaida or in the Galilee region, as it, it says. All we know is that Jesus looked for him with the express purpose of calling him to be his disciple. Apparently, he followed without hesitation or any type of reservation. So if we move on to verse 45, within this passage, Philip's first act as a disciple was then to go find his brother, Nathaniel. And Philip identified Jesus to Nathaniel in three ways. He says, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus. He is Joseph, son of Nazareth. He is the son of Joseph of Nazareth. Of course, Jesus was not the physical son of Joseph. And the gospel writer knew this. The gospel, John knew this. Philip probably knew it too, or he just spoke in ignorance at the time. But he meant that he, he, Jesus was from Joseph's household. Now we, and today we use surnames or last names to determine a person's n- full name, but that was not common in the ancient world. People were most commonly re- identified by their family association, even if they were enslaved people. And then their place of origin. So Jesus was from Nazareth and was reared in the household of Joseph. It would be like saying, my name is Guthrie, son of Hal, from New Concord, Ohio. And then they would know exactly who I was and where I was from. Now, earlier that day, Nathaniel had sought some solitude under the shade of a fig tree. And these fig trees were thick in foliage and they presented a lot of shade underneath them that they could sit and rest and and meditate and read. You see, the Talmud, which was a collection of Jewish scholars for practical living, encouraged his men to meditate under a large fig tree or a large tree reflecting and reading the scriptures and they were told to do that at least once a day. Now Nathaniel was likely doing just that. He was doing what the Talmud had instructed him to. And Philip's description of Jesus would only influence this man Nathaniel, the one who has studied the law and the prophets and was also looking for that coming Messiah. Now Nathaniel's response was somewhat incredulous. Can anything good from come from Nazareth? Now, Nazareth was considered in a no-account town not far from Bethsaida on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, it might be if we related that to a, a common term today, maybe the politicians in D.C. would look at West Virginia and say, can anything good come from West Virginia? And this is sort of the reputation that Nazareth had among the elite. But recent archaeological discoveries suggest that it was a town housed that housed a garrison of Roman soldiers. And where you find a town full of bored soldiers, you'll also find a nesting ground for vice and immorality. In addition, many Jews believed, many Jews 
believed that contact with Gentiles rendered them ritually unclean, and it would be hard to be part of Nazareth without some contact with those Roman soldiers. But Philip was not dissuaded by Nathanael's response. He said, come and see for yourself. Now, Jesus didn't rebuke Nathanael. Instead, he peered into that man's soul, and as he approached, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. Then to help Nathanael overcome his sincere skepticism, Jesus offered a small measure of supernatural evidence that he knew who Nathanael was. The dialogue continues. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Now the response was both immediately and enthusiastic. Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. This was Nathan's confession, and it reveals a remarkable depth of understanding and an oppressive depth of scope. He understood both the theological and the practical implications of Jesus's identity. He both understood him to be the son of God and the coming king of Israel. So now I've introduced you to the first five of Jesus' 12 disciples. We have Andrew, John, Simon, Philip, and Nathaniel in that order which they appeared on the scene. As we move on, I want to rabbit trail just a little bit here, and then we'll get back to the dialogue between Nathaniel and Jesus. Throughout history, the disciples were pre- have been presented as saints, which creates a particular holier-than-us holier image and sometimes can leave us feeling somewhat inferior. As a result, church has been named after St. Andrew and St. John, and we see statues of St. Peter and St. Philip. They seem larger than life. How can we ever measure up to them? But as we will study through the Gospel of John, we'll see the biblical accounts of these saints, and we'll find out that they were just pretty ordinary folks. They had their own share of problems, just like we have. They were far from being flawless specimens of any type of perfection that we tend to imagine. Instead, they were just like us. They were confused at times. They were called to fulfill roles that they felt they didn't have the abilities to fill. They were weighed down by all sorts of flaws and hindered by individual quirks in their own lives. But they were still saints, just like we are. In time, the disciples became great men of God. The Lord chose them. He transformed them. He equipped them. He trained them. And then he empowered them to make disciples of all nations. And as they did, all they had to do was to believe and follow Jesus. And even we can do that. Now, Nathaniel's heart was thoroughly prepared to receive this truth because he had been enthusiastically studying the scriptures and searching for that coming Messiah. So once Jesus removed that legitimate obstacle to believe that he was from the town of Nazareth, Nathanael believed at once. Others will prove to be quite the opposite of that though. The most outstanding displays of supernatural power will not move some people because they are so stubbornly choose to reject that truth that's standing right in front of them. As we move on to the last verse in this section, verse 51, as the dialogue with Nathaniel continues, 
Jesus' final words in this episode reveals an ultimate purpose for Jesus coming into this world. Jesus asked him, Nathaniel, do you believe just because I told you I could see you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Now, if I had a ladder here, I could illustrate this ladder between heaven and earth. Now, Led Zeppelin might have sung a song about that stairway to heaven, but Jesus Christ was indeed that stairway. Jesus bridges that great schism between heaven and earth, between the two that was separated because of sin. In verse 51 references that passage in Genesis from Jacob, Genesis chapter 8, 28, verse 12, where Jacob dreamed of a ladder that stretched from earth to heaven and angels were using it to move between those two realms. This is the verse as it reads in the Old Testament. As he slept, He dreamed of a stairway that reached from heaven all the way to earth. And he saw angels, the angels of God, coming up and down that stairway. It was here that Jesus announced that he was that ladder. What had been dreamed about, dreamt about, has become a reality. Undoubtedly, that held a special significance for Nathaniel. He was a son of Jacob. And as a sinful man and an earnest student of the law and the prophets, he knew that Jesus was now connecting that schism between earth and heaven that had been separated by sin. And now he had access to heaven through Jesus Christ. And throughout this segment of John's narrative, verses 35 and through 51, the Greek word horiskio, which means to locate by searching, appears for us five times. They are Andrew found Simon, claiming to have found the Messiah in verse 41. Verse 43 tells us that Jesus found Philip. In verse 45, Philip found Nathanael, claiming to have found the Messiah. Ironically, if you just read this passage through, it's unclear who found whom. From a human perspective, the men found one another. However, the heart of each of these men had been providentially prepared for that moment for when Jesus will meet them. Now, what's the overall application of John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51? Well, I broke it down into evangelism illustrated. The gospel writer's primary purpose was not to outline the different models of evangelism. However, It is worth noting that the various means by which each of these first five disciples were found and brought to faith in Christ fit into those categories. Their stories highlight an important truth. No one method of evangelism is effective for all people because we're all different. The passage illustrates four popular means of calling individuals to follow Jesus Christ. The first one is mass evangelism, verses 35 through 39. Mass evangelism refers to when one gifted person is proclaiming the good news to his audience who have not yet received that gift of eternal life. Now, John the baptizer was that mass evangelist of the first century. And he pointed to Jesus Christ and proclaimed, look, 
the Lamb of God. Don't follow me any longer, follow him. More recent examples in the last few centuries would be John Knox or John Wesley, George Whitfield, Dwight L. Moody, Billy Sunday, and one that we're more familiar with would be Billy Graham. They preached to large gatherings of non-believers and multitudes were converted and became disciples of Jesus Christ. The second method of evangelism would be personal evangelism, which is found in verses 40 40 through 42. Personal evangelism takes place when a person shares the good news of Jesus Christ with a friend or a loved one, some close associate. Now, it's perhaps the most common and the most effective means for people to come to know the Lord because they hear the gospel from somebody that they trust and respect. Unfortunately, personal, personal evangelism is dreadfully underutilized. Many believers fear that question from another loved one of how can I be saved? So instead of we invite people to church or we hire an evangelist to tell that news, and there's nothing wrong with that. We should invite people to church. We should hear evangelism. But we don't need to be uncomfortable about personal evangelism. We just need to live our lives as citizens of God's kingdom and with the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives. And those fruit, if you remember, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we do that, others will notice automatically. And then all we have to do is what Peter mentioned in his letters. We need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. The third method of evangelism would be contact evangelism. And that's verses 43 and 44. Now, contact evangelism, like personal evangelism, occurs when an individual shares the gospel with another person. The only case between these two is that might not be a close associate or loved one of that person. Somebody you might see occasionally, but you aren't real close to them. Now, we have no record of the contact between Jesus and Philip prior to when he said, follow me. Now, it's quite possible the Lord had been talking to Philip for several days or weeks and then called him to become a formal disciple. However, it's equally possible that he found Philip, according to John's shorthand here in his gospel, and this was a first-time conversation that resulted in Philip's immediate decision to follow, and upon belief, Jesus Christ called him to be his disciple. I wholeheartedly believe in divine appointments in which a person's heart is prepared and the Lord places him in front of a willing servant and a willing messenger in that path to faith. Now, contact evangelism doesn't seem to convince, it doesn't seek to convince another person to believe. Contact evangelism merely assists a willing heart to receive a gift of eternal life. However, belief might not even occur any time in the near future. It might be weeks or months or years before a person acts. You may just be a tool to plant a seed in somebody's life. Many people who become Christians later in life admit to hearing the gospel many times before ever believing. But we just go back to that lifestyle evangelism we talked about in that personal evangelism where we live lights as citizens of God's kingdom according and representing 
those fruit of the Spirit that are evident in our lives. And then we're ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. The last one is word evangelism in verses 45 through 51. The power of God's word dare not to be underestimated. So many people have come to know the Lord merely by reading the scriptures on their own, recognizing their need, and then kneeling in prayer by themselves, ever before setting foot in a church. Now, I have a story from 1898 of two traveling business people, and they recognized the power of the Bible to penetrate the hearts of non-believers. They founded an organization best known for its effective use of word evangelism. We know about them, and we support them at Putnam Church. They are Gideons International. They have a program of placing Bibles in hotels and hospitals and schools as a means of which many people come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and become his disciple. And although we might be limited more in the United States sometimes for all those Bibles that used to be passed out in schools and elsewhere, Gideon's International is flourishing on a global basis. And I'm constantly amazed at the variety of means that the Lord uses to bring his own people to faith. Sharing our testimony with another person is a powerful tool of evangelism. Living our lives as citizens of God's kingdom with the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives is a powerful tool of evangelism. So I have to ask, how did you come to trust the Savior? Share that with people and it will bring them to Jesus Christ. How has it influenced your preferred method of evangelism? So I must say as we close, let us be about building God's kingdom through our daily lives to touch the hearts and lives of other people, just like those first five disciples were called. Let's do the same. Next week's message, we'll begin to explore the messages of the miracles of Christ as we look at wines and coin and signs. So in preparation for next week's message, please read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 25, and we'll cover that lesson next week. Thank you, and God bless you. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.